Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. My guest today is Steve Scrovan. Uh, Steve's a stand-up comic and comedy writer and was one of the feature writers on Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, he wrote and directed a documentary about the life of Ralph Nader called An Unreasonable Man, uh, which came out in 2007. Um, I saw it when it first came out in Washington, D.C., and I got to meet Ralph, who was there in the theater, to greet people after the film. Um, currently, Steve hosts a weekly radio show and podcast with Ralph Nader and David Feldman, uh, where they discuss the political and social issues of the day. Um, the show is called The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and it's available on iTunes. I recently discovered the podcast and have been catching up on some of the older episodes, and I rewatched the movie this past weekend. Um, I think Ralph Nader is one of the most fascinating people of my lifetime. Um, the things he's done for consumers are unparalleled, and his involvement in the 2000 election has a Shakespearean uh, uh, quality. Um, due to my recent renewed interest in Ralph, I thought it would be fun to talk to Steve about the movie and the podcast. Um, he's not technically an author, uh, as is the theme of this podcast, um, but he's a writer and director, and so I thought it was appropriate. Um, plus, it's my podcast, so I can do what I want. Uh, so with that, let's give Steve a call. Hi. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Hey, this is Nick. I'm good. How are you today? I'm good. Good. How's the sound? Good. Yeah, pretty good. I'm um, experimenting a little bit, um, but I'm glad glad you can hear me. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's uh, you sound clear as a bell. We sound like we're in the same room. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for your time. Um, I uh, I've been kind of on a... Ralph Nader kick lately, um, you know, I've kind of rediscovered him a little bit, you know, back in, uh, 2000, I was a student at Notre Dame and I, um, uh, covered his super rally in Chicago for the school paper. And right. that was kind of, um, my, uh, um, I wouldn't say my introduction to him, but, uh, yeah. it, it was kind of like, a kind of like a, 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 a revelation to be there and it was just a pretty amazing experience and um you know and, and since then you know and i kind of followed him for a while but then i kind of you know haven't really paid as much attention to him lately but i've since discovered your podcast and i've kind of gotten back into him and and listened to um about 20 of, of the episodes so far i'm tra- i'm starting from the wow. beginning and and working wow. my way up to the current current times but uh I was motivated to watch An Unreasonable Man again, and so I thought it would be fun just to talk to you about the movie and the podcast. Sure, sure. Now, tell me a little bit about your podcast. What, uh, yeah, what, so, um, what does it cover? What You said you cover mostly authors, right? Yeah. Um, so I uh, I actually have, have two podcasts. Well, it started out with a blog. Um, I was blogging about the TV show MacGyver, which is my favorite show um, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, – um, well, actually, I guess I should take a step back. And I, I, I wrote a book um, when my, my first uh, son was born. And, and then after the book was done, I wanted to, to blog a little bit and kind of keep writing. So I thought I'd you know, write about what you know. So I thought well, I can write about MacGyver. So, um, and then once I was done watching all the episodes and writing about them, I thought, what can I do next? And I thought a podcast would be fun because I enjoyed doing interviews. Like I interviewed some of the cast and crew from the show. And um, my first podcast um, which I'm, I'm still doing is involving the Olympics where I, I talk to people involved like athletes. Um, right. and then I also thought an, an author podcast would be fun. So talking to people who have written books that I'm reading or books that I like. And, um, and in your case, you know, I just thought, you know, you're not, I guess, um, maybe technically an author, but you did write the movie. And so I thought, you know, I could, I could, I could work it in. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, I guess I I just watched the movie over the weekend, um, and I actually saw it um, in Washington when it first came out, and Ralph was there, and he was signing books and everything. So that was that was really cool. I was living in Washington at the time, and I got to shake his hand. He signed uh, the, the Seventeen Traditions, right. um, and uh, I guess I guess I was curious, kind of what the genesis was of the movie, like. Did you want to do a movie, and you were looking for a topic, or did you think of the topic and then decided it would make a good movie? No, uh, nothing like that at all. Okay. Actually, I'm uh, I was a comedian, oh, yeah. stand up comedian, and uh, then eventually became a sitcom writer. And I was a stand up comedian mainly in New York, and moved out here, and that's where my writing career started. And one of uh, my comedian friends back in New York was a woman named Henriette Mantel, 
and she's from Vermont, and she had worked for Ralph as uh, for Ralph, excuse me, as an office manager in the late seventies, early eighties. And back in the old days, when we were back in New York in the eighties, uh, hanging out at the bar at Catch Rising Star, uh, she would tell me stories about Ralph. And even then, before I was a uh, writer, I'd say, you know, that that'd be a good setting for a show, a uh, public interest office where anybody could walk in and, you know, you've got this, uh, you know, interesting character and that's all right. Flash forward now. Oh, 15 years later. Now I am a writer on everybody loves Raymond and I get a development deal from Paramount and I pitch them one idea and they don't like it. And I don't want to tell them I don't have a second idea. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, um, two weeks later, I serendipitously run into Henriette. And I'd always had this in the back of my mind, this this Ralph Nader thing now is a show. Now I'm a writer. So I say to Henriette, have you ever done anything with your Ralph experience? And she said no. And we started talking. She t- started telling me funny stories and Introducing you to people she had worked with back in the day, usually by you know by phone, I was sort of collecting all these little anecdotes and trying to get a feel for it and then all the while, I started reading about Ralph himself, who I had known about because i 'm old enough to you know have seen him on talk shows in the seventies, but i didn 't really know that much about him and had not voted for him. He was not even on my radar back in two thousand i I had voted for Al Gore. And I was amazed at everything he had accomplished and intrigued by the fact that everybody was so mad at him now. This is now in 2003 or so, 2002, 2003. And I thought, well, that's an interesting arc for a story. How does one go from a hero to pariah? And I had done an outline of my sitcom idea and had given it to my buddies at Everwillows Raymond, and they started asking me questions about it, questions that I couldn't answer because the experience was still secondhand for me. So I said to Henriette during a hiatus, let's go to Washington, and you can at least, I can at least kind of see, absorb the atmosphere and, and meet some of these people in person and kind of, you know, go to the office and just get a sense of it better than I had. So we did that. We took four days and we went to Washington. She set up all of these meetings for me. And uh, we even saw Ralph. Uh, we didn't really talk to him much. He was, he was, you know, he'd come into the office and we saw him at a distance and, you know, she said hi and he didn't know who I was at that point. And uh, all the time I'm talking to these people in Washington and I say sitcom, they, it, you can tell it really doesn't compute inside the beltway. I can see it in their eyes. But then I said, what about a documentary? And their eyes lit up because they knew that this story hadn't been told. And here I was with access through Henriette to the subject matter. And uh, they all trusted her. So I put the sitcom in my back pocket and had never done a documentary before. had never done a movie before. Henriette had had some experience in reality television. She was a producer on the Osbournes. And she had actually worked uh, on Michael Moore's show, uh, uh, what was it? It was a TV series called. Uh, I'm oh forgetting. yeah, yeah, I know uh, the one you're talking about. Yeah, I don't remember. Nation of Truth, something, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I apologize for not remembering that name, but uh, she'd had some some of that experience. So uh, we decided, okay, well, we wrote up a little treatment, sent it to Ralph, see if he'd be interested in cooperating with us. And we didn't hear for months and months until finally Henriette calls me. And says, um, I just called the office, going to talk to John, John Richard, who is Ralph's right-hand man. It was on a Saturday. And she said, and, and he didn't pick up. Ralph picked up. And we talked for about 20 minutes about uh, this and that, what was going on in the world. And then I said, so, Ralph, what about this doc? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And she said, I hung up before he could say anything else and <laughs> called you. And so all of a sudden now... You know, it was easy to write something down on a piece of paper, but I don't know how to do a documentary. I've never done anything like this. What am I going to (laughs) do? So I just kind of delved into research and started emailing potential people we could talk to. And a couple months later, we we started filming. First in San Diego, we went down and talked to Robert Felmuth, who was one of the original Nader's Raiders. And from him, I got a tremendous amount of um, 
information. It was actually good to, for him to be one of our first people because from him, I got a lot of the story that I hadn't got through the reading. And also every time I would interview somebody else, they'd give me the name of somebody else. And so I spoke to all the people you saw in the movie and actually some who didn't make the cut of the movie as it went. While I was telling everybody it was Raymond, and one of our one of our uh, coordinating producers was interested in documentary. His name was Kevin O'Donnell. And I said, Kevin, you want to do a documentary? And he said, yeah. So Kevin and I produced it from the from the Everybody Loves Raymond's offices in our off hours, along with Henriette. And we put it together. It took us about two years. And we uh, submitted it to Sundance. And lo and behold, we got into Sundance two years after we had started. And that was that was huge for us. Because now it was on the radar. We were, you know, out of, I don't know, 1,500 submissions they get, they pick 15 to be in their documentary competition. We were one of them. And from there, we got uh, a deal with IFC and um, the IDA, International Documentary Association, helped us qualify for Oscar consideration. And we made the shortlist for Oscar consideration. And then after that, PBS picked it up, Independent Lens, and they aired it. After we had a, uh, a uh, you know, six-month theatrical tour, and it was all great. It, and you saw it when they, we were in Washington, which was early on that uh, tour. I think we, we debuted in New York, then went to L.A., then, was, then just was kind of all over the country for that, uh, that spring and winter of uh, 2007. Yeah, he's a great subject for, for, for a story because I think he's – um, not only a genius and and all that he's done for for the country, but like you said, the the people who have turned against him. It's really something that you can't really really make up. You know, it's Shakespearean, and I mean, I think the whole 2000 election, even forgetting about Ralph, is just incredible. And you throw him yeah. in, and it's it's just an amazing story and one that really and you know, and we can get into it a little bit, but it's. You know, like, there's so much like internal conflict. You know, I think within these people about his legacy, and it's really just right. just an amazing story. I think, and the movie is really great. I really, you know, thank watching you. the second time, I love it. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you. Really well done. Uh, but the, it started as a sitcom idea. That's that yeah, was a yeah. way to answer your question. <laughs> yeah. How did it happen? Started as a sitcom idea. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, just the fact that you didn't have any documentary experience and you were able to to make it happen is really cool. Um, the and so, and so the first part of the movie, I guess the first act is kind of like, you know, the his rise and the things that he's done and right. you know one of the things that I took away from it was you know I think people the average person really doesn't realize all that he's responsible for and you know there's there's a line there I think it's toward the end of the movie where um where, where somebody said that you know like what if airbags and seatbelts said Nader on it, or if you got bumped right. from a flight and they called it the, the Nader rule, or if the air that you breathe said Nader, you know, and just when right. the, the one scene where you show all of his legislation that he's responsible for, um, it's really pretty overwhelming. Yes. As a private citizen, never yeah. holding public right. office. Right. right. It's uh, yeah, it, it is pretty amazing. And that's why, uh, it was a story that, uh, I found myself in, in, the new, in the unique position through Henriette to be able to tell of you know somebody who is truly uh, an American hero and an historical figure. Yeah, um, and and I also I really like the scene with Bobby Kennedy um, chastising this, the G, the uh, GM CEO while Young Ralph right. looks on. It's just really really cool. Um, some great footage there, and uh, and also the 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 uh, hot dog where um, the congressman talks about it as a, a missile of death and Ralph just kind of smiles as if he's kind of taking the bait, you know? <laughs> exactly. And that, that was an interesting thing because um, we were talking to James Fallows, who is yeah. a great writer for the Atlantic and uh, got his start as a lot of people did. You'd be, that, that's the other thing you uncover is all these people who are come to prominence now. A lot of them started with Ralph and James Fallows is this great writer um, for the Atlantic. He's written a lot of books. Uh, became a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter through Ralph. He met him through uh, met Jimmy Carter through Ralph. And when we were talking to James Fallows, I had seen that footage that you were talking about about the hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were talking to Fallows, and he starts talking about how we were sitting around one day. He remembers this very vividly, trying to think of you know what to call a hot dog in order to get the media attention, and he couldn't come up with the 
with the term. And because I had just seen that footage in the archives, I said, Missile of Death. And <laughs> that's why you see him laughing afterwards at the memory of it and saying, those were the days. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then it kind of gets to the next part of the movie is his kind of disillusionment with um, you know, the Carter era, and then and then Reagan uh, starts to roll back a lot of what he's done, and then um, the the 2000 election. Uh, it seems to me like for progressives, it's kind of a, it's kind of a double whammy. You know, it's not only yeah. the election of George W. Bush and all that went on, but it's also the tarnishing of Ralph's legacy. You know, the point where these former allies and supporters have turned against him where he's public enemy number one, which is sad. So it's in some ways the documentary is kind of painful to, to, to watch, you know, some yeah. of these, these things, but, um, you know, like a lot of, a lot of people and myself included have tried to kind of reconcile Ralph's role in all this and make sense of it. And so I think a lot of the movie is, you know, these interviews with people on, on both sides and it's a little bit like a, a giant therapy session, you know, I think where yeah. you know, pe- people trying to kind of just m- make sense of it. And, and I have, I have some opinions, but I'd be interested to hear, hear yours. Like, like, where would you, um, cause, cause I think pe- people on both sides make, make good points. And, and I kind of wonder like on a scale of one to 10, like where would you put Ralph's running as like, like, like one being he absolutely should not have run and 10 being he, he definitely should have run and it was the right thing to do. Oh, I, at this point I put it at a 10. Yeah. And I've had this debate so many times. And actually, uh, for your listeners, uh, Ralph talks about it. Yeah. It was a few episodes ago okay. uh, where he talks about the election. Yeah. And uh, because we had a question uh, that we got uh, from Facebook. Actually, I, we still get it all the time, uh, how he, he yeah. elected George Bush. And right. there are a whole bunch of numbers that uh, you know you could throw at it. Right. Uh, but people hold him responsible for the Iraq war and all right. of this. And, you know, the big answer to that is the Democrats, basically, they needed a scapegoat. They screwed up. And what are they going to do? Are they going to say, yeah, we screwed up. We had we had a lackluster candidate who uh, didn't run a good campaign, who, by the way, and this didn't come out in the movie, in uh, – during the time in 2000 when the convention was happening at the Demo- – actually here, out here in L.A., Democratic Party convention, Al Gore was striking a very populist note. I will fight for you against the pharmaceutical companies. I will fight for you for against all this corporate power. And when he was doing that, his numbers went up and Ralph's went down. But by the time of the election, the debates, late October, he they had reined him in on all of that. His numbers went down. Ralph's went up. So who's to blame for that? There's there's a point in the movie, which was always very interesting to me. It's the morning after the election, and Ralph is at a pre- at the press conference, and he says, "I think Al Gore cost me the election." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I thought the movie audience was going to to uh, be mad at that. Boo him. Uh-huh. Hey. And the first time we showed it at Sundance, and it was actually in a longer version than the one you saw. It was like two hours and 35 minutes. But and so it was well into the movie. Um, and then immediately I have this commentator named Todd Gitlin just tear into him and say the look on his face when he said that. You know, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And so I thought everybody would be with Todd Gitlin. Uh, to my surprise, in the very first showing, and this held true all the way through, is when he said that, the audience laughed. And it's because they were on his side by that time. They knew because the story was told from that point of view as opposed to the dominant point of view, which is that he's this egomaniac spoiler. They knew who this guy was by this time. And so they laughed. It was not, it did not get the reaction I would thought, which was, uh, you know, boo. So those kind of things happened. Um, the point I was about to make about the Iraq war and everybody blaming him for all of this is when those all of those things were passed, the Democrats had majorities in both houses. Right. They voted for the Iraq war. They could have stopped the Iraq war. They could have stopped uh, all the stuff that uh, happened that, you know, no child left, whatever, the, the tax cuts for the rich. They could have stopped all that, but they didn't. Instead, they'd rather blame Ralph Nader. And that's that's pretty lame. 
Yeah, I I agree with all that. I I probably like in thinking about on my scale of one to ten, I'd probably give him about an eight. Um, you know, I'll also have admiration for him. I think he's a, a great person, and so I would never, you know, be as kind of hostile as some of the people in in the video. Um, and you know, kind of what you said about blaming the you know the the, the Democrats and Al Gore, and and I, I feel like the people who are um, kind of a like really fired up about the Iraq war, which I understand. And, and, you know, a lot of issues that Bush did, I feel like Bush at the end of the day needs to be accountable for that. You know, whether, you know, you could blame Nader, you could blame the Supreme court, you could blame a lot of people, but you know, at the end of the day, the people in his administration, I think should be responsible for what they've done. And Ralph shouldn't, sh- certainly shouldn't be the scapegoat. And I also, I also didn't like the, the idea of the Democrats, like, um, Basically, like first trying to buy him off and telling him not yeah. to run, first yeah. buying him off, and then you know pretty much like harassing him and doing everything they could to keep him off the ballot. I just don't think that that's the right well, thing to one, do at all. I'll give you I'll give your listeners a little extra information here because we I didn't have this information by the time we did the movie because people just didn't want to tell me, and then later on after the movie is out they told me, but he was offered millions of dollars not to run. Yeah. And uh, so I finally got the answer, uh, $10 million from moveon.org and uh, $5 million from Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood producer. So $15 million they were going to offer for his programs, for, you know, probably the public citizen and to, you know, to do this. And he turned that down uh, on principle that he couldn't be bought, but that, it was, it was, that's what it was. It was $10 million from moveon.org, $5 million from Harvey Weinstein not to run. And was that 2000 or 2004? That was 2004 where he didn't okay. really, people yeah. often mistake. They think that he had some determining factor in 2004, but right. he got barely a half a million votes in 2004 yeah. and uh, uh, didn't affect any of the swing states. In right. fact, in 2004, uh, he demanded a recount in New Hampshire, I believe, which Bush had won over Kerry and which Kerry had not demanded, but Ralph had. And it turned out uh, by hook or by crook, it didn't uh, make any difference. But if it would have, the Democrats would have had to thank Ralph for winning Kerry the election right, because yeah. he was the only one. That's interesting. Kerry did not want to, you know, he wanted to be the gentleman statesman and wasn't going to call for the recount. But Ralph because he was a candidate, could call for that recount. And that's that's the Susan Sarandon clip you see in the movie where she's on a, a video conference with uh, Bill Maher and Bill right. Maher's show, real yep. time. Yeah. It's the, it's the one where she kind of sells him out. And, and Bill Maher says, hey, my guy is your guy too. Yeah, right, right. She was, she was actually reporting from New Hampshire okay. where they were doing that recount. So oh. she says, your guy, Ralph Nader, is... Uh, <laughs> causing a recon and he goes my guy was your guy too right and i and uh susan sarandon uh hated that clip being in the movie and wanted it cut out and i didn't do it oh, so she probably, it's, it's another back behind the scenes story where she tried to get me to remove that clip yeah i never spoke with her personally but through her, her people Okay, well, good for you for keeping it in. <laughs> no, I couldn't have done it anyway because we were already being submitted for Oxford consideration, and you can't change anything after that. So uh, I spent a lot of time trying to convince her that it would be good, and she's, her personal assistant tried to spend a lot of time uh, insisting that uh, it wouldn't be, but I knew all along that you know, I wasn't going to change it anyway. And then she called – actually, she called Bill Maher. And they took it to the HBO lawyers because it was from that show. And I was facing a possible lawsuit. But then HBO lawyers came back and told her that, look, uh, it's fair use. We can't we, – we don't want to do this. We, we do documentaries ourselves. And if we were held ourselves to this standard, it would limit us in what we want to do. So it was dropped after that. So it ended up not costing me any money. And so with my, my scale of, I, I said, I, I give him an eight. The reason it's not yeah. a 10 and I'd be interested to hear what you, what you think about this. It's not, I don't want to call it, call it a critique. Cause I'm not really critiquing his principles at all, yeah. but it, it's more just the, the tactics because I do, I do think that in, in 2000 or even in, in 2016, it's, it's not, 
really viable or realistic for a third party to win the presidency. And, you know, like he talks about the, 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 the least worst, you know, and you kind of have to hold your nose if you want to vote for the the lesser of two evils. But the way I look at it is that in the eyes of the American people, there's only two viable candidates. And so a presidential run by a third party candidate, even though it's it's noble, it's not really practical. And so I wonder if maybe like a third party candidate before making a serious run for the presidency, if the party um, like I'm almost thinking of like a like a 40 year plan. Like what if the Green Party, like for the first 10 years, tried to get candidates into local office and then the next 10 years have goals of getting candidates in a right. state office, then 10 years Congress and Senate. And then by then, you know, in 40 years, then, you know, then you're kind of like a viable third party that, um, you know, maybe people will look at. And I mean, there's other other ways too. Maybe you could try to get like instant runoff voting or debate access. But I don't know. I, I, I do see kind well, of where people are coming the, from. Right. As long as the two parties control everything, you'll never get instant runoff voting. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the, and, and that's true. And when Ralph, when they originally asked him to run in 2000, it, it's not like he went to the green party and said, I want to run for president. They came to him. And, uh, this is something we actually had to cut out of the movie because yeah, it was too long. Okay. Yeah. They came to him okay. and they requested. And what he said to them was, okay, you've got to go to every one of your state parties and get this approved. And he made them jump through all of these hoops before he would agree to be their candidate. And what they were after is, you know, they had no illusion that they were going to win an electoral vote, let alone the presidency. Ross Perot spent millions and millions of dollars in 1992, 96, and got 19% of the vote and still didn't win an electoral vote. That wasn't the, that wasn't the mission. The mission was to get 5% of the vote. Because with 5% of the vote, you get standing in the next election. In other words, you get federal funding to support you in the next election. And that's how you would build the party. And you're right. You do have to start at the local level. And, you know, the Green Party is trying to do that at all these levels. But they needed a national figure around whom to coalesce. And Ralph was that national figure who had the prominence and who had the principles that matched up with theirs. And that was that strategy. So there was never any, um, uh, you know, that's that's how third parties operate in this country. And I would urge you, I don't know, did you watch it from a DVD version? Or, I did. Uh, I actually watched a special feature about third parties. I did. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the one to watch yeah. because it's all about the role of third parties right. in, in our system, which is not a parliamentary system. And uh, Ralph often quotes Norman Thomas when... Uh, who is a socialist party guy, ran for president in the early uh, 20th century. He ran for president like five times. And uh, Ralph actually had, a, had an occasion to talk to him when he spoke at Princeton when Ralph was a student. And he asked Norman Thomas as he walked him to his car, he said, you know, what do you think is your biggest accomplishment? And he said, well, when Franklin Roosevelt stole all my ideas. And what he was talking about was Social Security workman's compensation, unemployment insurance, all of those things that were pushed by the Socialist Party that when times uh, warranted it, which at that point was the Great Depression, were co-opted and taken on by the mainstream party, which was the Democratic Party. So Ralph would tell you his, uh, the immediate goal was to get the 5% for the Green Party, but that and subsequent runs were just to keep a liberal agenda alive in this country. And you will find if you look at Bernie Sanders, everything he is saying, Ralph was saying 15 years before. And it's now more acceptable. And it's partly more acceptable because Ralph was out there fighting for that and keeping that alive. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good, really good point. Um, do you ever get, get either pushback or blowback when people find out that you are like doing a podcast with him? Like do people still kind of hold it against him and still, you know, kind of yeah. – yeah. yeah. They do. They still hold it against them. And, and it's just, you know, we're so many, it, it's, it's the firm grasp of the conventional wisdom. It, it tells me something about somebody when they say that it means they really don't have a sophisticated grasp of, of our process and what's really going on underneath. It's they've accepted the, uh, the mainstream dominant theory out there and that dominant point of view serves 
certain number of people. It serves these the mainstream Democrats. It it absolves them of any responsibility for their loss in two thousand, and absolves them of um, any responsibility to actually do the things that Ralph was talking about in his campaign, which Bernie Sanders now on that foundation is pushing. But if he's not, if he doesn't win the primary, then he's done in April, in March, whenever, and Hillary Clinton will, you know, run on her corporate, pro-corporate agenda, and it won't be much change. Right. One other special feature that I found really interesting, too, is the one I talked about, Ralph's, um, what do they call it, hypomania? Or, I, yeah, this, um, this was a thing. That was really yeah, interesting. I thought how, um, you know, it made me think of other people, like whether it's in business or sports, like in sports, it's, um, you know, like I'm a, I'm a Phillies fan and Roy Halladay, the, the, the pitcher is known for, um, you know, you would come in at five in the morning and, and he'd always be throwing and, or, or like Kobe Bryant, you know, after the game's over shoots for two hours. And that's kind of like, um, right. Something that everybody celebrates and I never really thought of it as like a, a condition, but and it's and, a temperament, yeah, yeah, it's like a temperament. And like the other people can't, like they can't understand why other people don't do the same thing. And Ralph was very similar. It sounds like you know, like there's a story about how the one guy wanted to go to the go to the beach, um, and Ralph said, "Well, if if General Motors goes to the beach for two days, then then you can go for two days." <laughs> um, right. And but you know the fact that he was such a like has had such a high motor and was such a workaholic plus his, his like just natural genius and his, and that's another thing I'm struck by whenever I hear him talk is just like, the guy is just like the smartest guy I've ever heard. I mean, just his, his recall and his ability to make points and his vocabulary is just like second to none. (laughs) Yeah. He, well, he reads, he reads uh, every day. He reads New York times, Washington post, wall street journal, cover to cover. Yeah, that's his that's his morning reading. Okay, and uh, that keeps him abreast of of what's going on. And he, and when he and he tells us that this is something he's told us on the show, it's not just the political pages. He's reading the sports pages. He's reading entertainment. He's reading science. He's reading. He says any. He says my job. If anybody, if people are interested in it, then that's my job to be interested in it. And that's why he has such a breadth of knowledge. But what is striking and kind of the genius part is the depth of knowledge and the comprehension and the retention of that. So he is kind of a perfect storm of somebody who is ra- who is born with this uh, hypomanic temperament. And we should probably explain what that is. It's, it's, a, uh, it's something you're born with. You can't really learn it. And it's just your motor runs at 70 miles an hour. Uh, the, the common denominator for this is it's those people who sleep for four hours a night and they wake up and they refreshed. And that's kind of the, the physical. So I don't know if the athletes have that because they need to get their sleep to repair their bodies. What they have may be something else, but on the intellectual scale, it is this, um, motor that, uh, allows you to be refreshed and, uh, only requires little amount of sleep. And which can be irritating to others that you're working with, as kind of you've mentioned. And it's kind of relentlessly constructive in Ralph's case. Um, and it's, it's not a disease. It's not anything like that. It's just a certain type of temperament. And apparently a lot of CEOs, a lot of very powerful people will have this kind of temperament. And I was uh, clued into it by my brother who's a psychologist who knew a guy, a colleague of his who wrote a book about it called Hypomanic Nation. His theory was that America is a hypomanic nation. It has this temperament because it's kind of risk-taking and it's uh, energetic and it's sort of uh, endemic to a nation of immigrants. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Who would who would uh, get up, pull up stakes, leave their country to go to a foreign country to make a better life? That is a immigrant quality. That's a risk-taking quality. That's an energy, and that this nation is kind of uh, has that foundation of hypomania. And I also talked to uh, uh, a Harvard professor named Howard Gardner, who's also in that uh, that featurette, which is called "Profile of a Charismatic Leader." And he wrote a lot of books about leadership. 
and he had various categories for them. And so in that, uh, that little featurette that you watched, they were able to sort of diagnose Ralph from long distance. And I don't, uh, it'd be interesting to me. I don't even know if I want to know if Ralph has ever seen this feature because (laughs) I know he's, you know, his being psychoanalyzed from a distance would probably not be a comfortable thing, (laughs) but I was able to take clips from all the people I interviewed, talk to these doctors. It didn't make it into the regular movie. And then they would, you know, posit something and I had people giving me anecdotes that would back up what they said. And um, it's uh, – oh, the other doctor I f- forgot to, to mention is a, name, a guy named Ronald Feevey who's – I don't even know if he's uh, still around anymore. He was in his early 80s when I spoke to him. But he's the one who um, popularized the use of lithium in bipolar disorder. And he wrote a book called Mood Swing in 1975. And the reason I talked to him is because he devoted a couple of paragraphs to Ralph that he was basing on a New Yorker article at the time. And it wasn't that Ralph was bipolar. It was that Ralph had this this relentless, uh, constructive, energetic temperament that he probably, they, they thought he got from his father, who was a guy who who was the one who moved the family from Lebanon to America and had, you know, was always... I always had like three businesses going at once, and a restaurant, a ski jump, uh, you know, all sorts of things. So that was the theory that he got it from him. So Yeah, so I'd be interested in talking about the podcast a little bit. Like, um, sure. How did you decide, um, or I guess how did it start? Was it something that you, you created or? Again, I was drawn into it by somebody else. Um, what happened was uh, my friend David Feldman, who's a, a comedian that I've known for a little while. Actually, I, I didn't know him that well, but he's a big Ralph fan. And he, he came to – I remember him coming to the L.A. opening back uh, in 2007. And uh, he has a podcast and a show or had one on KPFK, which is the uh, Pacific station out here in L.A. And I had done his podcast a bunch of times and got to know him. And uh, he called me one day, two years ago, and said, um, I w- I've, I've got this slot just open because this person who has the 5 o'clock slot on Friday in KPFK it canceled, it has to do something. And so I've got this spot that's going to be live on KPFK at 5. And he was calling me on Wednesday. And he said, I was talking to the program director, and we thought, you know, with the State of the Union address coming up, that uh, we talked to Ralph and he could kind of give an alternate State of the Union address. So I said, sure, uh, I'll, uh, you know, I'll give his office a call and see if uh, he'd be available to do that. And so I called Ralph's office and uh, spoke to some people that got to Ralph. Ralph agreed to do it. He was going to be in Connecticut, so he'd be on the phone. And so I hooked them up. And uh, David said to me, well, you have to be there. And I said, well, what do you need me for? He said, because Ralph Nader is my idol and I'm afraid to talk to him alone. <laughs> he just needed me in the room. So I said, okay. So I went to the station and sat in the room and I had headphones and a mic too, just in case I wanted to jump in as a safety valve for him because he was, you know, he was literally talking to his hero. And um, David had prepared very well and prepared all these questions and they had a good conversation. He was calling it Mr. Nader yeah. and <laughs> everybody calls him Ralph, but we're, you know, uh-huh. uh, he was calling him Mr. Nader and, uh, we had a great hour long show. And at the end we kind of hung up and David was literally pumped. He was literally pumping his arms like, you know, like Tiger Woods making a putt in 18 pole. <laughs> and we thought, you know, this guy's so smart. And so insightful. We should do this every week. With and Alan Minsky, the program director, was in the room with us, and he said, "Yeah, we, maybe we should do this." So we talked to Ralph. We called Ralph, and uh, after a couple of months of uh, actually not even a couple of months, probably six weeks, he agreed to uh, to try it. And you know, he's still very busy. He's eighty-one years old. He's going to be eighty-two uh, in uh, at the end of February. And, but you wouldn't know that from listening to him. And, uh, he thought, you know, okay, fit it into a schedule. It's a little, you know, he's done tons of, tons of press, never a show with him. And, and, uh, we started, I think in March of 2014 officially. 
And it was just David and I talking to him, like the two people sitting at the feet of the master. And we would talk about stuff that he was interested in, which was not always what was going on in the news. Uh, Ralph has a very particular approach to issues. And it's, you know, usually has to do with uh, fighting corporate power. And that's not usually what you get on the radio shows. Everybody's talking about Sarah Palin and Donald Trump and whatever the hot thing in the news is. And that's never been Ralph's uh, metier. It's always been what's underneath this and how do you attack it from this angle? And it's consumerism and it's anti-corporation and it's democracy promotion. And it's those things that are a little bit more wonky but make all the difference. So that's uh, that's how it started two years ago with David and I just talking to him. And then he got a little tired of just doing all the talking or having us talk to him and having to know about everything. And he's all about promoting others. So he started bringing on guests. And uh, we first it was like one guest. And then we would have two guests. And there were always people who didn't get on other stations who were doing very important work in areas that people just don't normally recognize. And he was trying to promote them. And that's what he continues to do. And uh, as well as every once in a while, we'll do a show where like uh, last week's show, if you click on the podcast, we do have one guest at the end who talks about typewriters because Ralph still uses typewriters. So he and this guy sort of geek out over typewriters. But three quarters of the show is Ralph dissecting Obama's State of the Union address. So we would play clips from Obama's speech and then have Ralph comment on them. And uh, those are some of the more popular shows, which, you know, the ones where it's, it's just him, but he just didn't want to have the burden of carrying the show every week and would rather, uh, promote other people. And it's fascinating because he's gotten, he's gained over these two years, some real broadcasting skills, how to wrap up an interview, how to, um, be prepared for it. I mean, he's, he's always prepared and be an interview who's engaging other activists in, uh, issues that he cares about. And so that's, uh, that's what was great about the show. And it's, uh, it's just been an ongoing education for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think you and David, um, are, I, I'm impressed by your ability to kind of hold your own with him and, you know, you, you're able to speak intelligently about, about the issues. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned David calling him Mr. Nader, because I just last week actually listened to, um, the episode on on Gaza and um, yeah. and it, it's funny because most of the time you guys kind of uh, agree on everything, but there is yeah. that one episode where he and David really kind of went at it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And he, he was saying like, "With all due respect, Mr. Nader," uh, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it's interesting. You kind of got to see a little different side of Ralph. I mean, he, he wasn't—I wouldn't say he was overly combative, but he definitely—you kind of could see his his um, uh, I don't know if stubbornness is the right word, but his uh, you know, his debate skills kind of shining through a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, David taking him on in that is a very brave thing. And yeah. <laughs> uh, since then, we actually had to discuss off the air about him calling him Mr. Nader. And Ralph really? finally said, you know what? It makes me uncomfortable for you to yeah. call me Mr. Nader. <laughs> call me Ralph. And and it was like <laughs> so foreign to David to yeah. be able to go, Ralph, <laughs> finally. And he's used to it now. Yeah. But it was it was very hard for him because he said, you know, my son, um, excuse me, my dad would call me into the room when Ralph was on TV and said, you look at this man. He's a hero and he's he's, you know, somebody you should respect. So <laughs> David felt he was honoring his own father by calling him Mr. Nader. But Ralph, who is all about egalitarianism, not putting himself above or below anybody, said, uh, you know, it puts me on too much of a pedestal. Call me Ralph. Everybody calls me Ralph. And that's that's what they uh, and that's absolutely true. Everybody calls him Ralph, but David, I think, is uh, you know he's really important to the show. Sometimes we do shows now where we hardly speak. I feel I'm more of a facilitator and you know set things up. And uh, I think David is really uh, skilled at sort of representing the everyman point of view. And uh, I just like the quality of his, his voice too. kind of cuts through everything. And I'm, I'm, I feel like I have more of the FM DJ voice who's, uh, <laughs> who's just sort of uh, facilitating the conversation. But uh, David is, uh, uh, you know, really good at this. 
the other thing that, that kind of strikes me about Ralph too, just listening to him a lot on the podcast, and you, this comes up in the movie too, but he really is is pretty funny in his own way. Um, like yeah. there was one one episode in particular that I, I thought was really funny when um, David was talking about. Um, uh, it was a. Uh, uh, Ralph was kind of palling around with Grover Norquist and they're right. doing talks for his unstoppable, the emergent left right coalition book. And, um, right. and, and David was, uh, kind of having trouble with coming to grips with the idea of, of working with, with the other side. And, and Ralph just kind of out of nowhere said, David, you're one of those, ah, people <laughs> yeah. you see with the other side yeah. you say, ah, but the way he said it was just like hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he's well, just, he, he's really funny. It's, uh, their relationship has, has grown. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you this other inside story, uh, that uh, the first show we were going to do, we were doing it at the studio KPFK. We now do it from our prospective homes. I'm in LA, David's in New York and Ralph's usually in DC or Connecticut. And we would submit questions and topics for Ralph. And that's what we did. And we did a bunch of serious ones. And then David put in a couple of joke ones, you know, about, you know, I know you can't be bought, but uh, your sister is a professor at Berkeley. Uh, can she be bought? Because my daughter's taking a class from her, you know, something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And so Ralph sees this question and some other joke kind of question. And about a half hour before we're supposed to go on the air for the very first time, I get a call from Ralph. And I'm sitting there with my cell phone across from David, who can hear everything Ralph is saying. And Ralph is going, who is this weird guy? Is, <laughs> is this some sort of joke? What is this? Some sort of slapstick thing? What is this? He's weird. And, and, and David is mortified. His uh-huh. blood runs out of his face uh-huh. and his leg is literally shaking out of the table because his hero yes. is saying, who is this weird guy? <laughs> and he was just mortified and that's thrown the whole thing. And that's how that started off. Uh-huh. And then it was the Mr. Nader thing. Yeah. And now Ralph, uh, now they can joke together much more comfortably. And uh, the dynamic, I think, between them when we do get to uh, yeah. to interact is um, is good and is, is fun. And uh, I'd like to see more of it. Yeah, I was going to ask about what he's like, um, kind of off camera. I mean, I imagine he's probably pretty pretty close to what what we hear. But just like w- when you spend time with him, because um, I know you've done some shows where you you've been together and you know you spend yeah. a lot of time with him. Like, like how would you describe like just like having dinner with him or like what is he like? You know what? He is pretty much what you see. Yeah, there's not much. Uh, you know, obviously more relaxed and not presentational like he would be on the radio show, but he's just a guy. He's a reg, you know, he's kind of a guy. Uh, there's very little, not a great small talker. I'll tell you that. Uh, although he can talk about sports, you know, he's a big baseball fan and basketball fan. Um, but not, uh, usually he's Mr. Utilitarian, you know, don't waste time talking about this or that or the other thing. It's, it's, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I'll, you know, I'll say, welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And uh, you know, my co-host, David Fennell, hello, David. And David say, hello, how you doing? They'll say, uh, and the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. And Ralph will go, okay, come on, let's get going. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no small talk. Mr. Not, not Mr. Small Talk. Uh, so, but it is what you see is what you get. I mean, there's, there's authenticity there that just cannot be denied. And just going back to the movie a bit, you know, the people who were really the most vehement about him in the film and called him an egomaniac and all were the people who didn't know him. The, then there was uh, other people who had worked with him before the ones who were torn about his running and what it did to what they were doing in the public interest movements and all of this. They, they never called him an egomaniac because they knew better because they knew what I know now, which is that he's authentic and that is really why um, that's what made it hard for those people sort of in the middle to, you know, oh, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish Ralph hadn't run because it makes my life harder. But uh, that's him. One thing that interests me is thinking about like where his motivation comes from. Um, I mean, I know the way he was raised. He's very civic minded family and and you know but i I wonder like just putting myself in his position that you know if i spent my life trying to 
help people and you know i i looked out and and for a lot of my efforts people you know if a lot of my efforts were ignored or i would think it'd be pretty discouraging and i might just think oh you know to to hell with them all and i wonder kind of what has kept him going through all that well he has said and he he had mentioned this uh on one of our recent episodes that he doesn't believe in mood swings yeah and in order to do this work you've got to be a lifer and you know like uh like gandhi said i think it was gandhi you lose you lose you lose you lose you lose you lose and then you win and so you've got to be relentless and you've got to be um you've got to be flexible and i think this this is where uh, people like Ralph, who are sort of leaders of movements, leaders of, uh, of categories of, of people, they are always changing their strategies. They're never doing the same thing the same way because they know that you have to, you know, uh, when unsafe and any speed happened and, and GM investigated him and they got in trouble for that, he knows they learned their lesson. You're, they're not going to do that again. You can't count on having the same strategy. And I think when he ran for president, he was seeing the results of the Reagan revolution and saying the, the things that we were doing that were working so well in the 70s are not working anymore. And we have to change strategies, which was alienating to all the people he had Johnny Appleseeded, who were at all these different organizations that he had spawned, who were doing all this great work. And he's saying, you've got to get into the electoral arena. Because that's the only way they'll listen to you. And we're, he changed strategies. And I think this is uh, Howard Gardner, I think, the, the, uh, the guy from Harvard who talked about leadership, said this happens to a lot of leaders is that they, they switch strategies or they change theories or they modify things. And all the people, the apostles, the acolytes, the people who learned that at this person's feet – can get alienated because they wait a minute. You it was good. It was this way all the time. Now now you're telling me it's this way, and it takes a while for them to catch up to the charismatic leader who is always a few steps ahead. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I was going to ask too about the the stand up rise up song. I um yeah I I think it's it's really good. And I was curious kind of where it came from, and I noticed actually. Um, at the, at the end credits of the movie too, it was there, and um, yeah. because I, I kind of think of it more from the podcast, because that's just kind of what I um, right. have been, been listening to lately. But I was just curious, kind of, what the origin was of that song, because I think it's a good fit for the the podcast. That was a song uh, written by a friend of mine named Kemp Harris. Okay, and uh, originally in the movie, in the uh, festival version of the movie, yeah, the end credit song was "Fight the Power" by the Isley Brothers. Okay, do you know that song? No. It's it's from the seventies and it's uh, you know it was a, a popular song in the seventies is, is uh, uh, <laughs> I hesitate to sing it to you but it's uh, people of my generation would know it uh, but it was a popular song called Fight the Power and we were able to get it for festival use for about fourteen hundred dollars from the music publisher but for the theatrical use they were going to charge us forty five thousand dollars to use it. I had gotten them down to $40,000, and that was all they were going to go. It's not the Isley Brothers, but it's the publishing company called uh, BMI. And we even tried to get to Ronald Isley, who is the lead of the, Arnold, of the Isley Brothers, and he just said, go through the publisher. He didn't care. So I said, I'm not paying $40,000 for this song that's going to be on for three minutes at the end of the movie when everybody's walking into the theater. So I called my friend Kemp, who is a songwriter, musician, and I said, I need an end credit song from a movie. I'll pay you 7500 bucks to do an end credit song that's kind of in the spirit of Fight the Power. And he said, great. And he came back with this song, Stand Up, Rise Up. And I kind of told him what also with content, what I was looking for, you know, uh, what the meaning, what the message of the song would be. So he wrote this great, funky song called Stand Up, Rise Up. And uh, and you're you're welcome to play it in the podcast so your okay, listeners you. can hear okay. it. Yeah, and uh, and it was great. And then he gave me permission to use it for the radio show, so it's the theme for the radio show. And we try to credit Kemp uh, at the end of the show, but that's how it came about. Kemp's out of Boston and uh, is uh, is really a great songwriter. Yeah, yeah, I I think it really fits fits well. Um, 
Yeah, stand up, rise up. You've been sitting way too long. Yeah. As, as far as issues, um, so did you say that, uh, or, or like the issues you discussed in the in the podcast? Yes. Do do you does Ralph come up with them, or do you, um, like for a given show, do, does Ralph say I want to talk about these three things, or do you? Well, if we if uh, now that we've been doing the guests, Ralph uh, Ralph gets and his associate book the guests, and then they'll tell us who the guests are, and then uh, David and I do the research, and. So we can write the intros and and jump in and if, if there's any chance for us to ask a question, which uh, happens occasionally. Uh, so in that sense, it's like, okay, this is what Ralph's interested in this week. He's going to talk to this guy and this guy or this woman that, you know. And we talked to some fantastic people. I mean, we talked to Nomi Prinz who, who uh, writes about the financial industry and uh, – uh, uh, Dave Freeman who's about the nuclear power and all, you know, all these – Things. Dr. Sid Wolf, who's uh, got 25 uh, dangerous drugs off the market, and, and promoting all these people we may not hear of otherwise. I mean, and other people were more sort of, uh, and it's weird to use this term uh, for this guy, but Chris Hedges is not, wouldn't be in the mainstream of uh, the corporate debate, but he is uh, in the corporate media. But he is uh, a well-known figure in the progressive media and, you know, talk to Chris Hedges and people like that. So Ralph has been picking the guests and then we will do occasionally we'll do just a listener question show. We submit – we get submissions on Facebook and now through our website of people who want to ask questions of Ralph and uh, we'll just throw these questions at him from the listeners and uh, he'll answer them. We, we try to do, you know, one a show at least and uh, – uh, and then sometimes when we fall behind, we'll just do an entire show of listener questions. And that also gets David and myself a chance to uh, ask follow-ups and participate uh, more fully in, in the conversation. But it started out us us giving him the topics and him, him saying, yeah, I know something about that. Because he doesn't like to talk about things he doesn't know about. Um, like we had some question about the Second Amendment. He said, you know what? Uh, I can talk about guns in general, but I don't really know that much about the Second Amendment. So I... That's probably not a good one for me, but there are very few subjects that he cannot expound upon. Yeah, I, I have a lot of catching up to do because I'm still back on uh, September of 2014. But <laughs> um, you can jump around. You're allowed to jump around. That's yeah, what the whole no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are there any particular issues that you really enjoy, or that are, like important to you, or that you really enjoy talking to him about? Uh, yeah, it's it's. Um... It's great. To, it's it's a great education for me because I not only do the show with him and here at that time, but then um, I have to pick quotations from the show for the website so that we can sort of tease people into the show from that, which means I kind of listen to it again. And then I listen to it a third time when because we lately uh, for the last uh, couple of months have been putting transcripts up to the show. So transcripts are available for people. And so I have to proofread the transcripts, which makes me listen to the show again, and I'm actually reading things. So I get a real good dose of each topic, and uh, there are certain things that are so important that most people just can't wrap their heads around. And the one that's my you know, favorite is not quite the right word, but it's uh, what I think is the most important is this Trans-Pacific Partnership thing, these free trade deals. Because what I've learned from Ralph and through Lori Wallach and through John R. MacArthur, who we've talked about all of this, is this is really a long-term bad trend where we've gone from in ancient history the city-state to now the nation-state moving in the direction of the corporate state, which is what these trans-Pacific partnerships and NAFTA and all of these things are. It is really corporations making the rules about how we live our lives. And this is a topic that I think is so important but can be so wonky for people. And uh, I enjoy hearing Ralph talk about that subject, explain it, and we'll have guests on who uh, can talk about it and explain it. And so if you're talking about one favorite thing, and favorite's not the right word, but one thing I think people really need to understand is this free trade stuff because I don't think I'm overstating it by saying it is a corporate crew of 
government when one government when one when a corporation can sue a government for billions of dollars because we did not accept uh the toys that they uh, were selling us that had lead in them and they can sue us because that's called a non-tariff barrier that violates our environmental standards and we have to pay them billions of dollars because that's a barrier that's in this agreement that is made up by all of these corporate lobbyists. That's really, that's a coup. That is a, a new world government. And it's not, it's not any wild conspiracy theory. It's the president of the United States pushing this. And that, you know, this just angers me. I, it's, you know, generally, you know, Obama seems to have his heart in the right place, even though his actions are, are tend to be weak. But this one, his heart isn't even in the right place. He's, he's got this uh, Svengali uh, trade minister, uh, Michael Froman, in his ear, and he's pushing this thing that is so obviously toxic to not only uh, literally to people but to democracy itself. And what kind of feedback have you gotten on the on the podcast um, just from, from people? Well, uh, generally great feedback. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's there's very few shows that are so uh, content heavy. Yeah, uh, that, that are <laughs> in a way that uh, you know uh, sometimes uh, even I think can be off putting because uh, you know when we whenever we get Ralph in uh, a little more uh, conversational mode as opposed to a presentational mode, and it's hard to do you know to knock him off topic a little bit. Uh, I think it just humanizes him, and it's it's a way that people digest radio shows and podcasts and, and all the audio sort of media. It's like the best of it is when you feel like you're eavesdropping on a conversation. And our conversations tend to be very uh, uh, content-heavy, which is good, um, because people get a lot of information out of them. And so the feedback we've gotten has been a lot of thanks for the information, the best hour in radio or, or podcasting. And uh, we we just need to break through into, uh, you know, into more radio stations. That's that's what we keep doing, even though the podcasting is probably the bulk of our um, listenership. The radio stations are sort of like the advertisement for that. So if you don't hear it all on the radio, you can get the whole thing on the podcast. So it's, it's like... Uh, a way for us to disseminate. So we're, we're constantly trying We keep on getting more stations. It's going well. And, uh, for me personally, it's just been an ongoing education that, um, makes me, people think I'm smart at parties. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any other projects that you're, you're working on with like either TV or movie or anything you can talk about? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I'll just say, uh, briefly, I'm, I'm using my, you know, I'm still a comedy writer, so I'm, I'm, doing my pitching of shows and I'm going to be working on this Nickelodeon show called school of rock, uh, in a couple of months and, uh, which is based on the movie. But, um, the, the project that really is, that's uh, heating up as close to my heart and we're, we're going to be pitching it. Uh, we hope to, uh, some networks, um, uh, cable networks is, uh, this project that I've been executive producing for about five years on nuclear power. And uh, I can't really say much more than that at this point because we haven't pitched it yet and we're trying to stay below the radar. But if we can pull this off, it, it could be a really important piece of work. And um, I'm very proud of uh, how far we've gone so far and uh, looking forward to it kind of rolling out, getting done, and uh, seeing if it has an effect. Cool. Well, yeah, that, that's 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 awesome to hear. I'll look forward yeah. to kind of kind of keeping tabs on that. Um, I'll, I'll come on your show. We'll talk about that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, Put thank my director you. on. Well, yeah. Well, thank you very much. It was really a lot of fun talking to you. And like I said, I love love the movie and I love the podcast. And I'm going to keep keep listening. And at some point, I'm going to get caught up because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, whether I'm like washing the dishes or cutting the yeah. grass and going for a walk. So. Um, you know, I, I think sooner rather than later, I'm gonna gonna get all caught up uh, caught up to live on your podcast. Um, well, good. Well, have you learned something from the podcast? Do you feel that? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, it, it's it's very educational. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it, it's it's you know, there's an element of of fun too, where it's you know, it's not just it's not totally dry. You know, it's it's right. it's, 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 yeah. it's interesting. It's fun. Um, and yeah, it really is 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 very well done. And I think once it gets 
once you start having more guests on, that'll be fun too because I haven't really gotten to that point yet. But um, but yeah, yes, yeah, like I said, thanks did again. Did we and, mention the name of the movie, by the way? Um, I don't think we did. No, an unreasonable man. Um, and it's from the quote by um, don't tell George me. Bernard Shaw. Yeah, George the Bernard Shaw. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, which really, yeah, I think it really really fits it well because you know I think he he is unreasonable, but like in a good way. You know, it's like his unreasonability is what what carried him to where he was at and to, to some people some of his critics he was maybe a little too unreasonable but um yeah that was a really the, very the good quote title. is the quote is the reasonable man adapts yeah. himself to the world the unreasonable man insists on adapting the world to himself right therefore all progress depends on the unreasonable man yeah and that's fit ralph to a t yeah well, one last thing too that i just thought of i had heard an interview with you um where he said where you said that ralph actually encouraged you to um talk to people who opposed him which i thought was was really you know spoke yeah. a lot about about him that he he would actually want to present that yeah he be, yeah because he he's not somebody who loses debates in that way and right. uh yeah that was the only feedback cuz when we did the movie uh, Ralph, we talked to everybody before we talked to Ralph. Ralph was the last person I talked to in oh, two really? years. Okay. So yeah. he was busy on the campaign trail and doing yeah. all this, and we were just a blip on the radar screen. Mm. So he wasn't paying much attention to us, and we weren't bothering him with stuff. We were just talking to friends and colleagues and associates. And um, the time he did, he did come to L.A., we brought cameras, and uh, I got to talk to him for a few minutes there, and he says, make sure you talk to people who oppose me. And then he gave me the name of this law firm. It was Ken Starr's law firm. I forget the name of it, who, um, you know, they're big corporate lobbyists. And so, so he's actually not only telling me, make sure you talk to people who oppose me, but he's, you know, giving me names of people to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, his, that was his attitude. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, thanks a lot. And yeah, good luck with um, the podcast and with your nuclear power project. Thank you very much, Nick. All right. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So big thanks to Steve for talking to me. Um, I really appreciate his time and his insights. Um, it's interesting that Ralph wasn't on his radar really during Ralph's election runs, but then with the movie and the podcast, Steve now probably knows Ralph better than almost anyone. Uh, once again, the movie is An Unreasonable Man, which has its own website at uh, www.anunreasonableman.com. Uh, and the radio show and podcast is the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and the site uh, there is ralphnaderradiohour.com. Uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for me, uh, send me an email at sweeto37 at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Project MacGyver and read my blog at themacgyverproject.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also listen for me in my other podcast, which is called Olympic Legends. Um, and since Steve gave me permission to play the show's theme song um, for the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, uh, here it is, a Stand Up, Rise Up by Kemp Harris.